You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you two thousand horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Erpad? Where are the gods of Sevarvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then 
Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The word of God. Good morning, church. There's a big difference between a crock pot and a pressure cooker. I mean, they're kind of the same because they both are devices that cook, and so in the end, they both kind of accomplish the same goal, but they do so differently, right? Crockpot has three settings, off, low, and high. You stick the glass lid on top of that thing, walk away, come back, and the ham is done. Pressure cookers are a little different, though. You have a locking lid, a couple different settings. And there's an intensified heat that goes on in a pressure cooker. They're similar but different because the crockpot has a slow cook, kind of a slow burn or an easy burn. takes a little bit longer. But the pressure cooker traps the steam, creates a chemical reaction with whatever food is inside of that pressure cooker. And therefore, the thing inside that pressure cooker has to take on the pressure. There's nowhere for it to go. It's locked and loaded and the pressure is on. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes life feels a little bit more like a pressure cooker than it does a slow burn in a crock pot. And in a moment, we're going to look at Hezekiah in chapters 36 and 37. More importantly, the Lord and God and what he does with Hezekiah and with his people. We're going to take a look at that, but because of where we're at in the book of Isaiah, I want to take just a just, I want to pull us back a little bit and look at where we've been already. So good morning. My name is Dusty White. I'm one of the pastors at Quorumdale Church. If you're visiting with us uh, this morning, I'd love to meet you and, and greet you. And so after the sermon or after the service, rather, come on down and um, love, to, love to touch base. Some of you have been with us for the whole journey through Isaiah, and some of you have dropped in halfway, and some of you are here for the first time today catching up on Isaiah. And here's what's happened. For the first 35 chapters... Isaiah has been calling the people of God to trust and obey. That's kind of a theme, or that's kind of the the mantra, if you will, of the first 35 chapters. Last week, we looked at chapters 34, which is judgment, and that's clear judgment on the people of God. If chapter 35 doesn't happen, which is a great salvation. And so we put an end to that 
part of the book last week, and we're about to enter into a new part of the book, chapters 40 through 66, which will carry us on through the rest uh, for the remainder of the series. But right now, we have chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39, in which we find a different kind of writing and a different kind of uh, uh, emphasis. So, you can think of it like this. Uh, It's kind of like halftime, where you're down by seven, and you go into the locker room, and you know it, and your coach knows it, that you're a better team. And so Isaiah's, in a sense, kind of giving you a little bit of a halftime pep rally. It's kind of a locker room talk. It's kind of, intent, it's kind of encouraging and inspiring, and you leave the locker room ready to go. Or perhaps you're not a sports person, uh, so you can look at it this way. This is kind of a screenplay. It's kind of a drama that's unfolding. And so that's where we find ourselves today. There is a story being told in chapters 36 and 37 that captivates us, and I want to draw us into that this morning if I can. So maybe you're not a sports person, and maybe you're not a drama person, nor a movie person. And so I'm not, going to sh- I'm not really sure what kind of person you are if you're not a sports person or a movie person, um, but that could be the case. And, uh, and so at least go with me downtown to the Bob Carey Pedestrian Bridge, where Omaha is united with Council Bluffs, apparently. If Isaiah 1 through 35 is Omaha, and Isaiah 40 through 66 is Council Bluffs, this week and next week we find ourselves in chapters 36 through 39 actually on the bridge. Now there's always that part where you're not quite sure what city you're in or how that all works. Um, But basically we're in this transition, we're in this mode uh, for the next few weeks, uh, next two weeks on where Isaiah's at. So let's look at these this, these two chapters in three ways. Pressure, faith, and glory. Three ways to kind of look at these two chapters in a big picture kind of way. Pressure, faith, and glory. Now before we look at the pressure that Hezekiah is going under, I want to ask you this morning, what pressure are you facing today? What circumstances do you find yourself in today that create a little bit of pressure? Think about that as we go through these two chapters this morning and worship God accordingly. Chapters 36 and 37, let me explain a little bit about what's going on here. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, uh, as you heard read, sends a messenger. His name is the Rabshakeh. I kind of want to see how many times I can say that this morning. The Rabshakeh, he's basically the big kahuna, is what Ray Ortland calls him in his commentary in his book on Isaiah. And he sends him out. To speak to Hezekiah, Hezekiah sends three guys out. Sennacherib sends one guy out, the Rabshakeh. This guy has an arrogant disposition. Hezekiah sends three guys out, and they're going to have this conversation. So we pick up the story in verse 4, chapter 36. The Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt. And he goes on to mock him here a little bit. That broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. And such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? And so we pick up the story right here, and the taunting is obvious. Right away, the Rabshakeh is bringing all kinds of heat. 
He's taking this message to these men, and he's saying, take this back to Hezekiah. And he's basically saying, um, we have this deal in the bag. We have history of winning. Take this message back to your, to your leader. Let's make a deal here. And look at verse 8. He even starts to sweeten the deal a little bit. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. So basically now, he's, now these are starting to get fighting words. Now you don't even think that we have the artillery, and the means to even fight. And so, now, what's going to happen? This is the tension. It's building into this drama already. We look at verses 11 and 12. Here's the first time that they respond, and actually the only time that they respond to the Rabshaka. says this, verses 11 and 12. Look at it with me. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshaka, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So they're basically saying, hey, um, I realize what you're doing here. You're really trying to bring all kinds of anxiety and influence here, and you're trying to taunt us a little bit. Um, hey, for the sake of everybody else that's around, could we speak Aramaic? It's a very diplomatic language of the time. And so, hey, could you not speak in that language? You're just kind of stirring the pot here. Um, could, we, could we agree to do that? Look at verse 12. The Rab Shaka said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Okay. <laughs> this is getting serious. And then, verse 13, the Rabshaka stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, not Aramaic, so he doesn't honor their request. He's not very, playing very fair here. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Okay, before we get there, here's what's going on. The Rabshaka is continuing to bring the heat. He's continuing to, to amp this whole thing up. He's continuing to pressurize Hezekiah's men and Hezekiah's faith. But then he starts to make a, a subtle shift here. He's probably, and this is, this is just my estimation here, he's starting to realize Something's happened here. These guys aren't caving in. This is their only request to me, and their only conversation so far was to change my language. Um, you know, they're not reacting. And so he starts to just attack their leader and them directly. Look at verse 14, 15, 16, and 18 with me. Here's what he says. Do not listen. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, verse 14. Verse 15, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in God. Verse 16, don't listen to Hezekiah. So if that wasn't enough, just don't listen to him. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you. So basically the Rabshakeh is saying, well, I got these three guys here. Maybe I can convince them that Hezekiah is off his rocker. He's not that good of a leader, and he has no idea what he's doing. So let me get psychological with his guys, his servants, his leaders, his officials, and let me remind them that we have them outnumbered, we have this thing in the bag, and let's, let's move on. Verse 16 and 17. Here's where we find ourselves now. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Listen to how great this is going to be. I mean, this is basically what he's promising. Hey, just come out to me. You're going to get your own vine, get your own cistern. It's going to be amazing. You're going to have it made. This is the promise of salvation, by the way. 
half-truth going on here. Until I come to you, verse 17, and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Okay, let's stop here in the drama for a minute. Rabshakeh is bringing the heat, but 16 and 17 are more direct towards, hey, come out to me, make peace with me, and everything is going to be great. I don't think these verses are just for them. So rather than, rather than reading right now like this happened to them, let's read this now as this happening to us, okay? Verses 16 and 17 are very practical for us because I think there's all kinds of gods and there's all kinds of influence in our culture today that are getting us, calling us, and wooing us to make peace with them. And they promise the same thing. Come out to me. Come out to me, make peace with me, and I will deliver all of these things. Your own fig tree, all of these things. Now, for us, it's not the Rabshaka, but it's different things, right? The God of affluence says something like this. You deserve more. You're worth more. Come on out to me, and, and I'll give you more. You deserve it. I mean, after all. You too should be able to walk the brick roads of Dundee and, play, and take selfies with Warren Buffett and Paul McCartney, right? There's this subtle hint of affluence right there. God of self-sufficiency says, there's nothing wrong with a higher power, but let's just, let's just be straight, says the God of self-sufficiency. This is about you. You put your head down. You go get it. You barrel through. You can have whatever you put your mind to. You don't even need help. God of pleasure says, this isn't temptation. Your body deserves this. Your body demands this. You can have it. You can have it to the full. You can over have it. You can overfeed it. You can overindulge it. When it comes to sex and food and gluttony, you do whatever feels good, says the God of pleasure. Come out to me. Make peace with me. The God of comfort says, not only do you deserve to be comfortable, your comfort actually matters more than anything else. And so the minute something starts to feel uncomfortable, you should be backing up. Something presses in on your budget. Something presses in on your friendship. Something presses in on your comfort. You should pull back, scale back. Your comfort is primary. Maybe that one's not for you, but maybe the God of approval is. You should please your spouse, your parents, and definitely your boss. And the reason you need to please your boss is because that plays into all the other gods, right? You constantly try to please these people because when there's peace with those people and peace in those circumstances, life goes better. But actually, you're just in a prison of approval. But it keeps coming. Make peace with me. Make peace with these things. The God of individualism says this, life is about you and you alone. And in light of that, I think this is very, um, I don't know, because I personally am not in this circumstance, but I think the God of individualism is a threat to singleness right now. I think if you're single, you hear the culture saying, why would you even want to be married? I mean, this is about you and you alone. Marriage gets in the way of that. I mean, somebody else to take care of and tend to and all of that. That sounds kind of complicated. This is about you. And then if you're newly married and you both have successful careers, why would you even want any children? I mean, kids get in the way. I mean, they're kind of great when they get older and they can do stuff. But they're going to totally mess with where you're currently at, says the God of individualism. 
And I'm sure we have many more gods that are wooing us and calling us and saying to us what's going on in verses 16 and 17 here, which is, come on, make your peace with me. It's right here. It's right now. It's tangible. Let's go get it. Let's pick up the story or the drama, if you will, in verse 21 of chapter 36. Here's how they respond. Hezekiah's men were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. So apparently there was a pregame speech that we don't have in Scripture where Hezekiah grabs his guys and he says, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go out, you're going to talk to this Rabshakeh guy, and he's going to be pretty intense probably. He's going to try to taunt you. He's going to entice you. He's going to ask you to make peace with him so that we can just be defeated because we actually are kind of defeated right now. Don't say a word. So this is what happens. They come back, verse 21. They were silent. They don't say a word. Verse 22, we realize that something has happened, though. They're definitely moved by this encounter. They're definitely moved by this situation because this is what happens. Eliakim, verse 22 of chapter 36. Son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So they honor their leader and they honor their Lord, but they come with the message back to Hezekiah and they say, here's what's going on, Hezekiah. And they not only verbally say something probably, they physically tear their clothes, which we know throughout the Old Testament is a sign of great humility great despair and a great need for something outside of ourselves to enter in and do something here. There's great dependence on God with these men in verse 22. So we see the pressure. It's unsurmountable, but they don't respond. They're moved towards humility. And we know that based on verse 22. They respond because they know that they're doomed. They come back to Hezekiah like, hey, something's got to happen. Here's the story. Here's what's happening. The pressure is heightened. And so what's going to happen? What do they do? What will Hezekiah do? Let me ask you, when your faith is under pressure, where do you run? When your faith is under pressure, your faith is being attacked, what happens? Where do you go? So they tell Hezekiah the news. As soon as he hears the news, he's tearing his clothes. Verse 30, or chapter 37 now, verse 1. This is his response as well. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth. Again, humility, despair, dependence. He went into the house of the Lord. That's the second thing he does. And so he seeks the face of God. Right away, he hears the news. He receives the news from his messengers. They have uh, torn clothes, a uh, sign of humility. He then does the same thing. And he seeks the face of God. He goes to the house of the Lord. And then, verse 2 of chapter 37, he sends Eliakim, who's over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, to go talk to the prophet Isaiah. So he seeks the face of the Lord. This is one way to look at it. He seeks the face of God. And then he sends for a word from God. Because he realizes, man, we are doomed. What's going to happen? Here's what happens. They have this encounter, they have this exchange with Isaiah. Look at verse 6 of chapter 37. Isaiah says to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Okay, I know that's the biblical answer, but I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling the pressure 
of my circumstances, and they're heightened. It's heightened pressure. It's pressure cooker pressure. And then I also have the whispers of the gods of my culture whispering in on me. And I'm in the middle of my faith with Christ Jesus alone. I don't think this right away every time. Maybe you do, and maybe you're better than me, but I don't think this right away. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. This is Isaiah's word to Hezekiah and to his men. He says, here, take this back. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't get overwhelmed. Basically, what he says is the Lord is going to do the killing around here. You don't need to worry about the king. Of, you don't need to worry about Sennacherib. The Lord's going to take care of him. He gives him this word and kind of some details of how that's going to happen. Do not be afraid. Thus says the Lord. I'm going to take care of King Sennacherib. Isaiah's asking us to trust God. He's been doing that for 35 chapters. He does that again here in 36 and 37 today. He's saying, trust God. Hezekiah's choice right here, his faith, his pressure is real and his faith is real because he trusts God. He goes to the house of God and then he sends for a word from God from Isaiah. Look at verse 14, chapter 37. Hezekiah receives the Lord from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. He spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. This is his second response. So the, the guys come back. They have this, this exchange with Isaiah. Now he goes for the second time, and this is just another sign, friends, of how dependent he is on God. Let me ask you this morning, is that you? Are you that dependent on God, or do you take matters into your own hands? When your faith is under pressure, do you do this? You seek God. Take him at his word. Stay firm in your faith. There's pressure. There's faith. And then in verse 20, chapter 37, we see this. Hezekiah starts to make the shift that it's not even about him anymore. It's not even about him being spared. It's not even about him being saved. He says this, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. God's glory is at stake. And Hezekiah knows it, and he feels it, and it's true. And so Hezekiah turns from his own circumstances, his own pressures, and he says, God, do something. Do something here. Do something now. Back up to verse 17. I want you to hear this today. Isaiah chapter 37, verse 16 and 17. Look at Hezekiah's disposition. God's asking us to adopt the same disposition and the same rock-solid faith. He says this, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who's enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He's basically preaching a sermon to himself about his theology right here. Sometimes you and I need to do the same thing. Look at verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. The good news in verse 17 is that Isaiah is giving you permission to cry out to God. Now, Hezekiah was a man of faith. Hezekiah had good theology. So you could say, well, I, I mean, God already knows 
my circumstances. Surely he knows the pressures I'm in. Surely he knows. I mean, because God is all-knowing, right? That's your theology, and that's good theology. Congratulations on your theology. Isaiah says in verse 17, go put your theology to work and cry out to God. God, incline your ear to me. Do you see what's going on here? We are doomed. I wanted to back up to that because some of us have never done this. You just assume that, man, God has seen it. Surely he knows it. Maybe he'll deliver me. Maybe he will not. Isaiah is giving you permission in verse 17 to cry out to God in a wholehearted cry. Come before him and cry out and ask God to see and to know. And here's what's interesting about the whole thing. Hezekiah has a radical faith that this will actually happen. He believes that God will actually deliver them. And so he's calling us to a radical faith in these two chapters. And as he calls it, he's calling, a, calling us to it to look at the Lord of glory and realize that his glory is at stake along the way. Isaiah believes in these chapters that the Lord will actually deliver him and them from this circumstance and that he will be more glorified amidst the whole thing. So you see the pressure, you see the faith, and you see the glory and the hero, or you might say the outcome of the whole drama starts to unfold here as he's concerned with the glory. Now, if you want, you can go there. If you don't want to, just listen to this. Isaiah's basically said, take this message back to Hezekiah. God does the killing around here. Verse 32, you see this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Verse 36, here's what happens. In the end, the good guys win, right? The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. So the answer to the whole drama and the answer to Hezekiah's faith and the answer to the pleas that he has when he's doomed and up against these circumstances, God doesn't even allow him to go do the fighting. He sends an angel of the Lord out there, and, they ta- and it's one against 185,000, and they're wiped. God defeats the enemy on their behalf and for his glory. This is about God. It's not even about Hezekiah. It's about God and what he plans to do with his people. It's very, very encouraging because that means that it frees you from doing the fighting. It frees you and I from the pressures, even though they're really real, to trust God. He is who he says he is. Now, perhaps this is your first read at this text, and a few weeks ago when it was my first read, I kind of read it and thought, okay, great. Why is this in the Bible? So, why is this in the Bible? I'd suggest to you this morning that this is in the Bible because we find ourselves in the same predicament, in the same circumstances all the time. The world is an unsafe place. Nothing is really safe. Nothing is really secure. I mean, we have the pressures and the circumstances all the time. We're in that tension all the time. We feel it. And while we feel that pressure and tension and circumstance, we also have these gods whispering to us that it's going to be so much better if we just come out and make peace with them. 
And so we find ourselves in the middle of all of that, asking God and crying out to God, God, strengthen my faith. Chapter 35 last week said, strengthen our weak and feeble knees. Isaiah wants us to trust him. Isaiah wants, him to, wants us to trust God, not Isaiah. He wants us to trust God. He wants us to trust God like Hezekiah does. He wants it because he wants to be advanced and glorified amidst it. And he also wants to come through for you in your circumstances to better your situations. He wants your faith to be as solid and secure as Hezekiah's, even if it's a little bit of faith right now. He can take that and use it to his glory and for your good. He wants you to trust God when you face turbulent circumstances. So that means that if right now you find yourself in separation and divorce, God doesn't want you to figure that out. He wants you to trust God. He wants you to trust Him. When employment is not working out, needs aren't being met, He doesn't want you to just muster things up. He wants you to look at Hezekiah's faith. He wants you to look at his own glory, God's glory, and take heart and take faith and strengthen your feeble knees in the faith that you know to be true in Christ alone. It means that no matter whatever circumstance you're facing, God is there. And he wants to meet you in it. This drama, this story is in the Bible because God wants you and I this morning to trust him. It's the same theme from the first 35 chapters. Trust God. Isaiah is calling us to a radical faith in these two chapters, and then we'll we'll see some more next week in those two chapters about his faith and even how it weakens a little bit. But here's the deal. These two chapters and the deliverance that we see from Assyria is a foreshadowing to the deliverance that we see in Christ. And that's coming. That's what Isaiah's pointing us to. And he wants us to live like God is real and like God is better than all the other gods and all the other circumstances that press in on us. Isaiah wants us to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, no matter how much Strength is there right now. He wants it. God wants it. So that when you start to feel pressurized, and you start to feel underneath the pile of your circumstances, you run to God instead of away from God. And you run to God instead of to the other gods that don't really suffice, even though they promise momentary satisfaction and momentary salvation. According to these chapters in Isaiah, God is interested in our faith. And he wants to come through for his glory and our good. And Isaiah's pointing to Christ in all of this. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as the people of God, admitting and confessing that we have half-hearted faith most of the time. And so, God, when we read into Hezekiah's life here, we're inspired, but we're also convicted. God, I want to pray that you would strengthen us in our faith, that we would believe you to be trustworthy, that we would believe that you're far better than all the other gods that 
clamor for our attention and clamor for our worship. God, I want to pray for a brief moment for my friends in the room who have no zeal, who in a sense have become apathetic in the faith. God, would you awaken them? Would you use Isaiah to awaken all of us to your glory and to the fact that you want to step in into our pressurized circumstances and save us so that we could be better off, but so that you could be advanced? So God, would you do that? And as we do it, as we receive it from you, we look to Christ who is the author and perfecter of that faith. Amen.